0: Welcome to the Talking With Tata Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Schneider. Each week, we invite different specialists to give advice and information about raising children in today's environment. This week's episode is with Dr. Nicole Katz, who is a pediatric neuropsychologist. She has a private practice in New York State and What you're going to learn is what a neuropsychologist is, specifically with pediatrics, but we do discuss adults as well. She provides consultation, support services for families, schools, lawyers, educational consultants, therapists, physicians, and much more. We discuss ADHD, being on the autism spectrum, and really just, what type of student are they? How can you help them? And I think there's so much of a stigma around seeing a psychologist in general, but maybe a pediatric neuropsychologist. And I hope today's episode really allows for you to learn what that is, what goes into an evaluation, and just how to help your child. The way that I talk about it with a student is similar to how I explain it to
1: adults. So what I say is, we all have things that we're really good at, and I'll You know we all things are a little bit harder my job is to make school more of the things that they're good at Mm -hmm. right and so when you kind of frame it as as an opportunity to learn about your child rather than something that you do simply because every something is going wrong right right granted you're not doing it because everything is rainbows and butterflies but it's not that way for anyone right um so when you frame it as kind of this opportunity to learn more about your child so that we can be more effective together and then I think that that can be
0: a little bit more inspiring and kind of hopeful for the parent. Today's Tata's tip of the week is really learning to learn from others and get a second opinion. And what you're going to learn in today's episode with Dr. Nicole Katz is really just the stigma around just learning about your child. And you want to get a second opinion about something. And you really can't address what you don't understand. Whether that is you, an adult, or if that's your child, you really want to learn your child's strengths or maybe their weaknesses or vulnerabilities. And it's never going to hurt you. You don't have to do anything with the information, but seeking out information will benefit you and your child. And something that she, I want to stress that she mentions is success feeds success and learning more about your child and what type of learner they are or even what type of student they are. Can they sit in a classroom for 40 minutes? Or do we need to make a few accommodations? It's not a weakness. It's really just trying to increase their strengths. We will, you'll learn a lot about it throughout the episode, but just seeking out more information about your child or what type of student they will be or are is never going to hurt them. It will only help them benefit. Handholding and the feedback that you might get from one of these professionals and how much that can help a student or a child thrive. I am very excited to welcome Dr. Nicole Katz, who is a pediatric neuropsychologist, New York State licensed psychologist, and New York State certified school psychologist in Manhattan. So welcome. Thank you. Of course. So you specialize in providing comprehensive neuropsychological evaluations, which focus on assessment. Interventions, accommodations, ages 4 to 26 years old, and these patients have various learning and academic, tensional, developmental, and social, uh, emotional challenges. So I'm going to give it a little bit more of a bio here and really plug you since you are incredible, but you provide consultation, support services for families, schools, lawyers, Educational consultants, learning specialists, therapists, and physicians. Yeah. yeah, it's a mouthful. Why don't you kind of just introduce yourself to our listeners who don't know much about you? How did you really know that you wanted to be a pediatric neuropsychologist?
1: Okay, I have. I live in Manhattan and I have a private practice um, in Manhattan, which I opened several years ago. Um, and so I see students throughout the tri-state area, but. I've also seen students throughout the country, mm-hmm. it, It's because it's such a specific field, right? So what drove me to it? And yeah. I think about it, there's probably three things that came together to lead me to this path. So the first is I've always really had a passion for helping students with learning difficulties. Mm-hmm. I've seen kind of the power that it can be when a student understands their strengths and difficulties or learns how they learn. Mm-hmm. And for parents to have that knowledge, because when you have that knowledge, you can help them be more successful and you can help them feel better about themselves. Mm -hmm. So when you take that passion for helping students with learning disabilities and then I had this fascination, I don't know why, about the brain from an early age. Me too. I get that. (laughs) I relate to that. I I did. And then I remember in a very early psychology class, I think it almost even was in high school, Mm -hmm. I learned about this concept called brain plasticity. And basically what it means is that the brain is flexible and it can change and adapt based off of things that we do or experiences that we have. And it's pretty incredible to think of your brain being able to do that Mm -hmm. because it means that something that might be hard in the moment doesn't necessarily have to stay that difficult. Right. So I also really liked puzzles. So basically what I do every single day is I put a lot of pieces of a puzzle together to help students with to help students understand their strengths and difficulties. And then I use my knowledge about brain behavior relationships to help create a plan to make their lives easier.
0: Okay, wow. So it's interesting. I just moved and I have I found something in one of my drawers and it's a little brain right. and it takes out like the frontal lobe and it's literally a puzzle yeah. brain. Um, I have one for the larynx too, which is part of the throat. <laughs> um, a little bit of a nerd, but right. I, I'm obsessed with the brain and I know this whole idea of neuroplasticity and your brain is really, it's a muscle. So it's always growing. It's always learning. There's so many interesting things that I don't think people understand really. Exactly. I mean, that's kind of what
1: drove me mm-hmm. to 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 think about it because yeah. I related to you know we all relate to that, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the way that I frame it also to children, too, is that you can think of sometimes the brain as being, or parts of the brain as being under construction. And so some things may come easily and some pieces or some abilities may be under construction. And what I do is I put the right builders in place so that it could be something that is now something that's easier for them.
0: Right. You're a contractor for the brain, basically. <laughs> oh. For those who don't know, what is a, you know, can you give us a simple definition of just neuropsychologist?
1: Basically, a neuropsychologist is a psychologist, so a thoughts and feelings Mm -hmm. doctor, that has special training in how the brain works, how behavior impacts the brain, and vice versa. So then within neuropsychology, there's a subspecialty of pediatric neuropsychology. And basically, pediatric neuropsychologists use that training to help or support children or adolescents With learning disabilities, with other neurodevelopmental conditions, so meaning the onset is during development, with mood factors or anxiety or brain injuries or medical conditions that impact learning. My specialty is more so in the aspect of helping students with learning disabilities, neurodevelopmental disorders, and then the impact of anxiety and mood on their learning.
0: Can you give us a few examples? So ADHD would be an example of the population. ADHD is a
1: perfect example. Um, Dyslexia. Uh, dysgraphia, um, autism, a language disorder. Those are really yep. kind of the most dyscalculia or right? a learning disorder with impairment in math. Mm-hmm. Those yep. are really the main ones that I see.
0: Our fields, and this is something I try to talk about in every episode. It's very multidisciplinary. So I refer to you, you know, I'm sure that you refer to other specialists as well. It's really incredible how little people know about your field and what goes into it. And to be honest, even me, I know we spoke about this um last week. Like I'm trying to learn about really the extent of what you guys do. So, you know, what is a an evaluation for you? You know, where do you start with a client? So I could take you through the process. So
1: what it is, it's a tool that n- pediatric neuropsychologists use to help understand what a student's strengths, what their obstacles may be so mm-hmm. that it can help them with learning, with daily functioning. And so it's probably helpful to talk about what that process yes, looks like. Please. So <laughs> how I do it is I start always start off with a consult. So okay. a parent calls me, And I wanna see if it even is appropriate to move Mm -hmm. forward with an evaluation, right? Sometimes I'll ask them what they've tried, what's worked, what hasn't worked. If they wanna move forward, then we start with an intake. And that's where I'm talking to a parent or both parents, Mm -hmm. usually both parents, if there's two. And we talk about kind of developmental history, educational history, what's worked, again, what hasn't worked, um, and really kind of going into the nitty gritty of Mm -hmm. how we got here. I'm reviewing educational records, I'm reviewing medical records, um, sometimes I'll do a classroom observation. So I'll go in the classroom and see what their behaviors look like. Mm-hmm. I then also do all my own testing. So I take in observations um, in the testing environment. Um, I collect information from teachers, speech language pathologists, tutors, and psychiatrists or psychologists that they're working with. And then there's the testing portion. And basically, what the testing is is it's paper and pencil tasks or tasks that they'll do on a computer or an iPad okay, that basically taps into specific skills or abilities. So whether that be language, visual-spatial skills, attention, executive functioning, reading, writing, math, et cetera. These tasks have been given to thousands and thousands of other individuals of the same age that I'm, I'm mm-hmm. working with. And what I do is I compare that the student that I'm working with responses to those of those same age peers, so that I could figure out how do they compare to those same age years. Mm-hmm. So we're looking for kind of what's considered within normal limits versus not necessarily, yep. right? And then what's most important is that I'm also looking for patterns, so a personal strength and a personal obstacle. And then once I take all that information together, we then have a feedback session, and that's where I relay that information to the family. Even though I'm giving feedback along the way, but you kind of put it all together in mm-hmm. a nice little a bow, package, right, yeah. Yep. In the feedback session, and then I'm usually then providing feedback sessions to whomever the student is working with, or I'll make referrals where needed, and then kind of take it from there.
0: So. To be honest, it's not that far off from a speech and language evaluation. You know, we start with whatever developmental age-appropriate test. Right. And you're writing up a report. I'm discussing it with the parents and comparing it to age-appropriate norms with other children or, you know, age – you know, I guess population, age, all of that. What if a child really can't sit there for this test? Are you accommodating them? How are you really working around that? So – I always need to meet the
1: student where they are, right? So if it means, let's say I, by default, am usually starting a testing session doing three different three-hour testing sessions. Mm -hmm. You know, the point of the session is to see what the child can do in the most optimal environment, right? Because if they can do it with me, but they can't do it in the classroom, then there are more environmental Mm -hmm. factors, right? So I want to create the most optimal setting. So if a child can only last... 45 minutes, an hour, we'll stop because after that point, you know, I'm collecting, yes, it's helpful observations, but it's it's dirty mm, yeah, data, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what I'll do for a kid that really can sit is I'll let them walk around. I don't care, right? right. If they want to walk around and answer verbal questions, that's totally fine with me. I'm very structured in how I do it too. So they come in, I you know, I make a schedule. There's usually something that they're working for or motivated by, mm-hmm. you know, candy works great. Mm-hmm. If it's a teenager. Positive you know, reinforcement. Whatever yep. it takes to get yep. the data that we need to answer either the parent's question or the child's question is kind of what we do. Yeah. The child doesn't necessarily know how structured it is, but it's very structured. And sometimes it's, I'm giving an M&M for every single question. If that's what it takes, I'll do it. Yeah. Um. And and then at, when they reach a point where they tap out, I'll say, you know what, I'll see you next time. Yeah. And then I'll come back. And I just want it to be something that's not A torturous experience for them. It should be fun. Some things are going to be boring,
0: but we just got to get through it. Yep, absolutely. And I think you also seem like a very relatable person. You know, you're not just someone who's, I mean, no offense to this age group, but like 60, 70, who's just like, take the test, old school, paper, pen. You know, you do these days, especially with the populations you're working with, we really do have to be more creative. I know if I'm working on an S sound, sometimes just having a snake is not going to do it, like the S um, and having them make the difference sounds, you know, you do have to be, you have to kind of manipulate it a little bit to 100%. be more um, accommodating to whoever you're working with.
1: You, exactly. I'll let them think that they're making a choice and yeah. what they get to yeah. do when really we're going to do the same thing. <laughs> it's just a matter of their choosing the order. I love if that. They want to sit in my chair and, you know, yep. whatever. If Really, you want to make them feel like they're in control mm-hmm. of it and then they'll
0: probably enjoy it more. Absolutely. So, Back to just working with these different families, you know, are you the one communicating with doctors and schools, or is this something that really you're just the parents are involved with?
1: I spend a lot of my time communicating with the schools, with the speech language pathologist. Mm-hmm. Granted, parents have to give me permission to do that. Yes. So I spend a lot of time collecting information that they have, right? Con- using their, because that's data yeah. as well. And then once I've relayed that information to a parent, I don't necessarily expect a parent to kind of have that all of all that information yeah. kind of from the get-go. And and I don't expect them to just be able to relay it. I mean, I, I want them to and I give them the language to, but sometimes it's easier for me to communicate yeah, it as well. Direct communication. So I'll provide uh, the feedback session to a collateral source mm-hmm. as well.
0: And then whose responsibility is it to make accommodations for the child? Is it, obviously, I'm sure schools... Every school is different. But if you're working with a great school, is it the parent's responsibility or is it the school's responsibility to then enable whatever recommendations you have? Right. So I think,
1: you know, it's important to think about there's accommodations and then there's interventions. So the difference is like an accommodation is a modification in what the child is doing or the exam. So t- most commonly people think of extended time, yeah. right? Or – um maybe putting fewer questions on a page at a time. You're not actually changing the exam, you're changing how a student has access to it, Mm -hmm. right? Then there's an intervention, which is kind of going in and targeting a specific skill to make it better. Okay. And usually from an evaluation, I'll make recommendations for accommodations and interventions, both for home and at school, we're warranted, of course. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately, we bring these recommendations to a school when they're for the school, mm-hmm. and the school can decide whether or not they're going to implement them.
0: Got it. Okay, so there's just so much more to then just, you know, here's the test, here's the result you know, figure it out.
1: And even for parents, too, my recommendations are not requirements, Mm -hmm. right? I'm an expert in the field. You're an expert in your child. Mm -hmm. Let's put that information together to figure out what would be most feasible.
0: Absolutely. So you start really working with children around, you said, the age of four, correct? Yes. Okay. So at what point should a parent really take their concerns and get an evaluation? So
1: I say for me, age four, because at that point, they've had some access to instruction. Mm -hmm. Um, Other neuropsychologists, that's not necessarily, not everyone. The standard role. Exactly. We can't address what we don't know or Mm -hmm. don't understand. And I tell parents all the time that no child is born with a set of instructions, right? Wouldn't it be nice if there was just a manual and what worked for one child worked for another? But it never seems to be the case. Mm -hmm. So usually parents are a lot of different reasons parents might seek out a neuropsychological evaluation. Mm -hmm. But commonly, parents might have questions about a diagnosis or whether or not their child um, would be eligible for services. Sometimes a parent is noticing that their child is putting so much effort into their homework, and it's taking a long time, and maybe their grades are not reflecting that. Mm -hmm. Or maybe there's some resistance to their homework, and parents are faced with kind of managing that resistance. Absolutely. Then there are parents that have already put some supports into place, whether it be or schools have put some supports in place, and parents are wondering, is my child making progress? What is this doing? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of parents might feel like they're playing whack-a-mole, right? Like, so they are they have this service in place, they have this support in place. And then as soon as one thing gets better, another thing comes up. And so again, I think parents want to make sure they have the the knowledge to help direct and advocate for their own child. Absolutely.
0: No, and I think that's a great point because a lot of parents come up to me and say, You know, does my child need extra help? Do they need extra time? You know, I don't know if they have ADHD. And I'm personally someone who always believes, like, the more knowledge you have, the better. Mm -hmm. I would always say, get a test done, right? What's the harm, really? If a parent comes to see you, you do your entire evaluation and you say, I think you're, you know, we're okay right now. We don't need to get the extra intervention. Does that happen often?
1: Where a parent, where we don't need to do the more? Yeah, like you,
0: yeah, you just do the evaluation and you're
1: like, you know what, we're age appropriate right now. Just because a parent comes to me for an evaluation doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to give a diagnosis. Whenever a parent comes to me, there's usually something that a parent has questions about. And regardless of it meets criteria for a diagnosis, there's always things that we can be doing to help support a child. So I never kind of leave a child or an evaluation saying, nope, your your kid is fine. Like, don't do anything. A lot of times I'll say, oftentimes, most of the... oh, I always... Very often, I'll say, your kid is fine, even with or without a right. diagnosis. Right. Here are the things that we could do to make your life a little bit easier, because it sounds like you're having trouble or struggling right. this with is this, or this is what you're struggling yeah. with. I do often get to say, actually, you know, your child is you know, commensurate to same age peers, or this is appropriately developed, but still the parent wants to help improve a certain skill that maybe they might see as being mm-hmm. difficult. And so I'll give recommendations there.
0: Got it. Okay. And just one more question before I kind of get into the different populations. How would an evaluation differ from just a school psychological assessment? Okay.
1: So a school psychological assessment is usually, it's more narrow than a, a neuropsych. So typically when you're doing an evaluation within a school or a psychoeducational evaluation, you're looking at Intelligence or intellectual abilities. There might be a school, an observation, a classroom Mm -hmm. observation, and then you're looking at academic skills, right? Whereas a neuropsychological evaluation, you're doing those pieces, but then you're also looking at visual spatial skills. You're also looking at fine motor skills. Um, You're going more in depth into language, attention, executive functioning, which is a fancy term for the ability to organize, initiate, regulate a frontal lobe. Yes, yep. exactly. The <laughs> frontal lobe, a, a wider scope. Yep. And then I think the other major difference is the purpose and how those evaluations get used. So typically when you're doing an evaluation in a school, the main question you're answering is: is this student eligible for special education services? Yes or no, mm-hmm. right? versus a neuropsychological evaluation, you're thinking about what is underlying the difficulties that we're seeing? Mm -hmm. Is there a diagnosis? What are the recommendations? And then typically, a neuropsychological evaluation is done by a neuropsychologist Mm -hmm. that has um, more intensive training into kind of brain behavior development.
0: Okay, got it. That makes plenty of sense. So Something that I was very curious about, misconceptions. There is a lot in my field. There's a lot just in general. Can you tell us a few of the misconceptions about your field that you really want people to know? I think one
1: of the one big misconception or that's been in the media is that you just go to a neuropsychologist if you want extra time, right? Mm -hmm. Or that extra time is the answer. Mm -hmm. Another one that I, I think that's really important to me too is that parents might or others might assume that a student is getting a neuropsychological evaluation because they're not as bright or they're mm-hmm. not they're not as smart and that is very far from the truth i see very very bright students and sometimes they might have an isolated weakness mm-hmm. but that doesn't necessarily generalize to them not being capable or Going on to have more than successful educational careers, right? Absolutely. I think there's also even more so than in the field because not so, there's not a lot known about the field. Is a lot of misconceptions into ADHD or learning disabilities, yeah. right? And I think ADHD. You when you think of ADHD, you probably think of it as an inability to pay attention. <laughs> When really, what it is, is difficulties regulating where attention is going. Mm -hmm. So, a parent might say, you know, when they are engaged in a task that they're super interested in, they have no difficulties paying attention, right? But you might see difficulties shifting away from that task. And that's kind of that regulation aspect. Mm -hmm. Sometimes parents, people think that it's caused by bad. Bad parenting. Also, not true, yeah. right? Children with ADHD or, the, or that might have externalizing behaviors are more difficult to parent. Mm-hmm. Or that students with ADHD are not that aren't kind of able to get started on their work are lazy. And I've never met a lazy student. Mm-hmm. You know, usually when a student is having difficulties getting started on a task, there's something underlying that right. difficulty. Yeah. Um, I mean, I could probably do a whole podcast. Probably. I'm gonna have thousands of questions. (laughs) But um, I think I'll start
0: that. You were walking in and we had Brian Kelly, the points guy walking out and he had mentioned how he had ADHD and actually asked you the question of, does this mean my son's going to have it? So it's certainly not a one-to-one
1: correlation, yeah. meaning just because a parent has it, a child has it. Mm-hmm. But there is a genetic predisposition and, and correlation there. Okay, And so it's very often that I'm talking to parents about their children, yeah. and then I ask them about themselves. And they'll say, you know, I was a little bit like this, right? Or yeah. I used to have similar challenges, or they're very much like, or I see a lot of myself in my child. Mm-hmm. It's very common, again, not the end-all be-all, for if a parent, you know, to have something that a a child might have it, but it doesn't necessarily always
0: mean that. Similar to my field, family history, it's really important. It's not the end-all be-all, you know, just because maybe a family member has a fluency or a stuttering issue does not mean the child will, um, but it is giving us a lot of information. Right. Um, So we discussed ADHD. What about autism and the spectrum in general? Are there any misconceptions that you really wish people knew about? I think.
1: There's a lot, right? I, you know. There's a saying that if you have met one person on the spectrum, you met one person on the spectrum. It's a very wide spectrum. A great saying. You know, one of the things that I think there's this misconception that individuals with on the spectrum are not interested in making friends. And that's far from the truth, right? They are very interested in mm-hmm. making friends or um, socializing. Sometimes they just lack those skills in order to do so most effectively. Absolutely. This conception that maybe people on the spectrum or individuals on the spectrum don't show emotion or don't have emotions or can't aren't capable of empathy. Mm-hmm. That is far from the truth. They have very strong emotions and they feel really
0: deeply. Those are probably the, the top three. Or yeah, things absolutely. And idea. so in our field, um, I know you know this, but I don't think all of our listeners know this. I cannot diagnose autism. I cannot diagnose any of the spectrum disorders. And I can encourage parents. I'm really not allowed to use the word, so It's very difficult in our field because parents panic and they say, well, what do you think it is? And we just say, you know, these are the age-appropriate milestones. Maybe your child's not hitting them let's see, you know, let's talk to your pediatrician or your occupational, whoever they're working with. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really a big challenge for me where I want to say, I don't know, but maybe this could be it. And I would want someone to be honest with me. You know, do you have any advice for someone, actually a professional in my field of, how do I like just gently encourage a patient or a parent to go see you or a professional in your field? That's a great question,
1: right? Um, I think I also run into to this sometimes too, because I, whenever I make an ADHD diagnosis, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't talk about medication, yeah. right? And so sometimes parents don't want to. And
0: and they get turned off by and it. And they get turned yeah. off by
1: it. And I'm not necessarily saying that it has to be the first line of defense, but I'm, I say, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't let you know what the research suggests, yes. right? So I think one of the things is, is you can say is, you know, you came to me for support and I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't kind of let you know all of your the options for your next yeah. steps. The other thing is that, you know, just because you make a call to make a consult or to speak to someone doesn't mean that you necessarily have to follow through. Yeah. As we said, kind of knowledge is power and it's helpful to collect more information. And so call a Call a neuropsychologist, call a few, yeah. see if any of them kind of make you feel comfortable, how you like how their process, you know, how they're listening to you, and then kind of go from there. But I think parents do get really intimidated mm-hmm. by the process because it feels like this big journey. And granted, my explanation of what's entailed makes it feel that way. Yes. But that's a lot of the work that I'm doing, not necessarily that they're doing. Yeah. The way that I talk about it with a student is. Similar to how I explain it to adults. So, Mm -hmm. what I say is, we all things that we're really good at, and I'll, you know, we all things are a little bit harder. My job is to make school more of the things that they're good at. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, when you kind of frame it as, As an opportunity to learn about your child, rather than something that you do simply because every something is going wrong. Right. right? Granted, you're not doing it because everything is rainbows and butterflies, but it's not that way for anyone. Right. Um, So when you frame it as kind of this opportunity to learn more about your child, so that we can be more effective together, and then I think that that can be a little bit more inspiring and kind of hopeful for the parent.
0: Absolutely. And I'm a very visual learner. Um, Growing up, I actually thought I was more of an auditory learner. And my mom, at one point, I really was just like not that into school, which is funny since now I'm like so into (laughs) education and the brain and everything. My mom would actually read to me what I was learning. She would take my textbook and read it to me. So that worked for a little bit. And then I became more of a visual learner, even when it comes to directions. If I've done something once, I – would like to toot my own horn, I'm kind of a savant with it. I can get anywhere at any point. First time, awful. Second right. time, especially if I'm driving, not really walking, Um, not including New York City, I will get lost here forever. I can do it. So I also think you're really helping people learn what type of just, I guess, learner they are, right? right? What type of student they right. are. Right,
1: exactly. Yeah, and it doesn't
0: have to always be a negative. I think that's great. If you, If someone had said to my parents, your child is a visual learner, she needs to see a picture of it. Right. My life would have been a lot easier.
1: Yes. And I think that, you know, success feeds success. Yes. Right. So when a child feels capable, when school is going well for them or that they not even necessarily going well, when they feel like they're making progress, they're more willing to take those risks in their thinking or to kind of think about things differently. We might think about this in our everyday life too. Mm-hmm. If we were going to work and we were feeling successful and good at what we do. Yeah. We would come home feeling great. We would be happier, not just in our career, but in everyday life. Yeah. We might take on more roles. Then when we think of if a school or a teacher or instruction is really... Kind of not conducive to the child's weaknesses, not conducive to their strengths, they're going to feel like they're not, school is going to be harder or the task is going to be harder. And then they're going to see their peers surpassing them in skills, right? And it's really hard to build a skill or build resilience when you're constantly faced with challenges.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So how do you, how do really these strengths, or even vulnerabilities, play into just how children are doing at school?
1: So as I said, you know, it's really helpful to understand what those strengths and weaknesses are so that you can capitalize on Mm -hmm. those strengths while then using those strengths to remediate or build up the things that are harder, right? And, you know, as I said before, success feeds success. And when things are harder, it it just can make, it can downstream into other areas of your life. Mm -hmm. So I'll take an example might be helpful to work through an example such okay. as writing. Give us a case study. So right, so with writing, um, there's so many things that go into writing. You have to read the question. So mm-hmm. there's reading abilities. There's understanding what the question is asking. So that's receptive language. There's uh, the fine motor aspects of, of writing. A, yeah. Right. Yeah. Holding a pencil, handwriting. There's generating ideas. So then there's expressing those ideas. Right. All right. Then there's putting those ideas into se- coherent sentences in a logical order in an organized format. Then there's editing and revising and self-regulation that goes into writing. So we just listed so many different skills for one task. Yeah. Now, a student that is having difficulties in fine motor skills, that intervention is going to look very different than a student who might have difficulties generating ideas mm-hmm. or editing. And so understanding the strengths and understanding what is hard is really going to guide how we intervene or what we're going to tap into Mm -hmm. within a
0: task. Absolutely. I I really keep thinking back to just myself. You know, I went to a very tough private school um, for high school and – I couldn't necessarily – I wasn't a bad student, but I couldn't really learn the way that everyone else learned, I guess. Um, There was nothing, you know, that was standing out. But even just the way that I would take a test, I always had to outline my information on the back of the page. And that was how I did it. Again, maybe this visual learner in me. And then I would go back to answer the question. So it's not as simple as just like memorize, write it down. And I was surrounded by very brilliant students. I mean – I. Honestly,
1: I am I feel like, I, I mean, I, I'm a visual learner yeah. as well. So I think that it's great that there's all different minds and yeah. people that learn differently, right? And I think different is not synonymous with less than, yes. right? And I think that if we didn't have all different kind of brains with people with different strengths or, yeah. you know, then we wouldn't be able to have people with all different careers or lives or inventions, right? You know, the the things that you just talked about kind of making outlines Mm -hmm. is helpful for so many people, right? Regardless, of, and they can, you know, be brilliant. It doesn't matter kind of, it has nothing to do with how bright someone
0: is. Absolutely. And I think we're kind of moving out of this um, idea of ACT, SAT, that is how you know you're smart. Or did you get a 4.0 GPA? You know, I think there's so much more now. And I'm hoping I think we still have a lot to learn, but I'm hoping the education system is kind of moving away from those types of tests. I mean, I had to take two standardized tests to get into my high school. I took SATs in eighth Mm -hmm. grade. So, you know, I do think that, and I hope people are just moving out of this kind of like old school mentality that like testing is everything. Half the people who started these huge conglomerates and companies barely even graduated college. I think there's just so much more. And I work with, you know, again, like children who are two years old, and they, I just see that they're so bright, but you can tell that they're maybe not going to get it the way that other children do. You know, I appreciate your field because you're really thinking past just the generic way of this is the brain, this is how you learn, check it. So, and like we said at the beginning, brain elasticity. Everyone kind of grows in the brain. Exactly. If you took out a part of the brain, well, the other part of the brain is changing its shape to then take over for that part that was... Taken out again. You watch a little bit of Grey's Anatomy and learn all of these things, <laughs> but it applies to students too. You it know, in really children, does. and it's it creates a lot of hope. That's
1: again yeah. something that's hard. It you know yep. initially doesn't need to stay that way.
0: Absolutely. So, talking a little bit about parent involvement because most of the um, listeners to this podcast are new parents, old parents. It doesn't really matter, but they are usually parents. How much parent or caretaker support really impacts a child's education and learning ability? I
1: mean, I think parent support is super important, right? But I think different children will demand different levels of support at different times in their lives, right? Um, And I think at the end of the day, it's about finding a balance between fostering that independence Mm -hmm. and also supporting them in a way to kind of give that foundation to kind of go on, Mm -hmm. right? Support can also look different for different children, right? So a student or a kid that's having difficulties regulating their emotions, that support's going to look very different than a kid that's struggling to read. And support can also take very many different forms. Support can be seeking out a speech language evaluation or kind of working with you. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to provide necessarily that support directly. Right. It could be advocating for their child. It could be standing over them while they're doing their homework and redirecting them. Mm-hmm. So I think parent involvement is really important. And I think finding that balance of not being too involved in kind of doing it Right, helicopter right, parent, yeah. Versus kind of not, you know, being involved in in the child.
0: So how do you really recommend parents or even how do you talk to a child about an evaluation? You know, you don't want them to feel like they're the only one going through this You know, I deal with it in my own field. But how do you really give parents this advice of just how to talk to their child about getting an evaluation? So
1: I tell them
0: the – whenever a student comes into my – so first, I give
1: parents a letter Mm -hmm. that – comes from me that they can read to their child wow. and they could either read it to their child or they can use it as a foundation for the language for that discussion Got it. i say if you if you are going to explain the process to this child i want you to pretend that another child is in the room and that other child is going to say wait i want to be able to do that so the way that we have that discussion is as i said before i'll say or a parent might say to their kid you know listen you told me that xyz is really hard you know and here are all the things that you're really good at. You know, let's, let, I want you to kind of see Dr. Katz or Nicole yeah. um, so that we can make school more of the things that you're good mm-hmm. at. And what I'll say to a kid too is I'll say, were you born with the ability to walk? No. At one point it was under construction and now you don't even have to think about it. Yeah. So my job is to see all the things that you're good at and to see if there's any construction zone so we can build it up and make it something as easy as walking.
0: Got it. You make it relatable and you have a very relatable personality. I mean, I just met you. Um <laughs> so you know, and I feel like I can talk to you really about this and not just because I'm so invested in this field and just the pediatric world in general, but I do think you seem very relatable, and you wanted to really children to feel comfortable, not right. that they're going in for something special or something no. different to make them stand out, right?
1: And I, I mean, I can't say, hey, I saw your classmate like yeah, last yeah. week, but I'll say, which you probably did
0: see most of their classmates anyway. Sometimes, but, yeah. right?
1: But what I'll say is, you know, when I was going to school, I really liked seeing my friends at school. Yeah. I really liked math, unpopular, and I'll make a joke, unpopular opinion here, right? And then I'll say, you know. Learning a foreign language was really hard for me or definitely didn't like reading as much. Is there any part of school that you're like, eh, I could do without, right? right? You know, sometimes they'll open up and they'll say, you know, they'll usually say, I really like recess. And I'm like, oh, my God, recess is the best, (laughs) right? Um, and then they'll they'll tell me kind of the things that are maybe a little bit harder yeah once you can kind of bring down the the level of kind of like emotion involved in this yep. too yep. and and normalize it and not feel like we're pathologizing what they're saying is really kind of half the the battle. the battle there yeah. right Absolutely. because once when they feel comfortable i'll be able to see more skills so when we're all happy and mm-hmm. things we're relaxed we're able to do our best thinking yeah if we're all of us, right? When we're anxious, when we're angry, when we're mad or or we say things we don't mean. We do things. We can't do our best thinking. Right. So it's so important, I think, to make this seem, you know, relaxed, make this – tell them, you know, we're here to play some games. We're going to do like things that are a little bit boring. Yeah. Just got to get through it. If it's boring, you can tell me it's boring. I won't be offended. Yeah. I did not make these tasks, right? But yep. we just got to get through it.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. So what is the education behind becoming someone in your field and the steps that it takes?
1: So I'll take you through my path. Okay. So I did four years of undergrad.
0: Okay. And a psychology major? And I was a psychology okay. major,
1: which you don't necessarily have to have. Mm-hmm. You There's just requirements in order to get into graduate school that you would have. Okay. To so do similar that. to my field. And then I did five years of graduate school. And so within those five years, I did a few externships. So I did an externship at a school. So I worked as a school psychologist for a year. So what
0: people don't realize, and I think it's similar to my field, is an externship is similar to an internship. Right. I was not paid. Are you paid? No. OK. Um. <laughs> so it's basically an internship. but You do it in different environments, different populations, and you mm-hmm. kind of check off a criteria. But that's really your first clinical work, right. I guess. OK. So I actually went
1: to a school psychology program. Oh, and wow. I, OK. Uh, so to earn my PsyD, which is a yeah. doctorate in psychology. OK. I worked in a school for a year. I worked in a neuropsychological uh, neuropsychologist's office, which is actually how I was first exposed to this. Wow! Then I worked at Bellevue. I, I did adult neuropsychology, which was super helpful because which is what I love, <laughs> which is because everything that we know about child psychology, child neu- neuropsychology, came from adults. Yeah. Right? right. Not that children are just mini adults, but that was great. And then. Within those five years, one year is also an internship. So I did my internship at the Mount Sinai Epilepsy Center, and I did lifespan neuropsychology. Then after your five years, if you want to be a pediatric neuropsychologist or a neuropsychologist in general, you have to do a two-year fellowship. So after graduate school and getting my doctorate, I then did a two-year fellowship at NYU Child Study Center, where I purely just did neuropsychological evaluation for children.
0: Okay. So other than undergrad, you're in like a eight-year? Yeah,
1: at least seven. At least it's 7 years. It's a year. marathon. Wow. <laughs> it's a marathon. But you do
0: – you are a doctor, sure. so you do have that those credentials. Right. Um, But I think people – I don't think people are aware of that. It's a long road. Uh If once you make it out, though, it's 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 great, and and you have the experience to really start your practice.
1: You have the experience, and then also it's not like it's just school throughout Mm -hmm. those all those seven years, right? Throughout a lot, you know, at least for the internship and the two-year fellowship, you're you're not necessarily making money, (laughs) but you are you're working and you're getting that experience and you're figuring out what you like, what you don't like. Absolutely. And honestly, I can't imagine getting less training mm-hmm. to feel this confident and comfortable mm-hmm. in what I'm doing, right? And kind of making the decisions and that yeah. I'm making.
0: Absolutely. And just to finish off this episode here, you know, how do you stand out? And maybe I just answered this and I know it's an awkward question, but right. you really are relatable. You make it, you're young, you're cool you know, how, (laughs) I'm really getting that ego Um, (laughs) up. I'm not cool at all. (laughs) All right. You might not be that cool. When it comes to how you would stand out in your field, like what is your go-to to to really, you know, make yourself seem more relatable?
1: Right. Um, I mean, there are incredible neuropsychologists. I Mm -hmm. mean, my mentor is, I would say she's the best. And there's a lot of training that goes into this. And if you're in this field, you, you have, you believe that things can, will get better, yeah. right. Otherwise you wouldn't be doing this. Mm-hmm. But I think one thing that parents really appreciate, I, I do a lot of handholding, right? And I, I, you know, I don't expect a parent to know all of this. Mm-hmm. And so I start feedback at the intake. And so as soon as someone is telling me something, I'm not waiting for this feedback session to give a grand reveal. I tell them exactly what I'm thinking throughout the process after, even though we might do several testing sessions, I'll call them after the first one and say, hey, this is what I'm seeing. You know, this is going really well. So and so had a hard time with this. Do you see this at home? Right. So I think bringing parents into the process and making them, they are just as important. Yeah. Here, As you know, again, I'm an expert in the field. They are the expert in their child. Mm -hmm. And so when we can collaborate, I think it it allows parents to feel like I got it right Right. or I've gotten to know their child and I'm seeing this. um, And so it's more believable, and they're more motivated, and they feel more in control of what they can do
0: next. Absolutely. And I think that takes a lot of empathy, because you have to understand what the parent's going through. Because this can be very difficult for a lot of different parents, you know, depending on the population. Some people think, oh, ADHD, not a big deal. But it might be a big deal to that parent, um, or even to the child. So I think you do have to really channel a lot of just empathy and just understanding how people feel about all of this. Right. You know, going back to like Psych 101, you know, understanding people. All right. And I let them know, too,
1: that even... You know, diagnoses are super reductionistic, and kids are multifaceted, yeah. right? The, and, and it doesn't look the same in everyone. And it it and really, I the last thing I would want is for me to have a feedback session with a family and be like, "Wow, that's you know a new child," or I've never thought about yeah. that, right? Like, it's not supposed to be this huge grand reveal, right? right? It's supposed to say. Oh, that makes so much sense. Yes, that's what I see as well. I'm not surprised You're to hear dots. that. Right. Yeah. I'm
0: not surprised to hear that. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So where can our listeners find you? Do you do consultations just in New York since I know you live here? Or are you willing to speak to some of our listeners in Miami? Where can we contact you?
1: I'm happy to speak to anyone, right? Um, Again, it's even if it's just a conversation. Yeah. But they can email me. Okay. um, Is probably the best way to get through. All right.
0: And your website? And my website. Okay. uh, DrNicoleKatz.com. Thank you so much for coming on. I hope people really understand this whole pediatric neuropsychology in general because I know I should understand more and I really don't. So I appreciate that.
1: I want you to know though, you should I tell parents this all the time is that it's not helpful to should on yourselves, right? Like a parent say like I should do this, I should do yeah. this. Like if you knew that you would, right? Like, like no tip. one It's not as though, again, a child is born and they're like, okay, here's a pediatric neuropsychological Mm -hmm. evaluation. First of all, it's a mouthful. It's difficult. I can barely say it. Right? Yeah. And I would never expect a parent to know. I didn't know this really. And it took a lot of years, even knowing that I wanted to pursue psychology in some way, shape or form. I did not. I didn't really know about Mm -hmm. this. So I really don't want a parent to feel like, oh, I should have known this. I should have done this. You make the decisions that you do based on the information that you have. And it's never
0: too late. You know, even if I wanted to know what type of learner I was, (laughs) trust me, I am never going back to school. I will absolutely say that. But, you know, (laughs) I'm done. But I do think it helps people also maybe even learn your job. What type of learner, you know, just everything. I think it's important. I'm highly going to recommend a lot of our patients to really contact a professional in your field. Great. Thank you so much for coming on. I hope everyone learned a lot from this. Thank you so much for listening to the Talking With Tata podcast. Please subscribe and follow along wherever you listen to your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, wherever that may be. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talking With Tata and our website, TalkingWithTata.com.